Hello and welcome to the NCG Golf Podcast and we've made it to the series denouement. It is episode six of series one of 2024. Can't believe we've made it this far, Steve. Neither can I. And to order as well. We normally always miss one. I like how you've used the word denouement. I've used it in a piece today. It's obviously a trendy word, denouement, isn't what it? Was the, what was the context in which you used it? Because I was slightly concerned it wasn't the right word and I said it anyway. I was talking about the climax of the 2019 Masters, which I'm writing about for our Masters preview for National Club Golf Magazines. Five years, obviously, since Tiger Woods's fabulous victory. That is well weird that that's five years ago. Goodness me. I know. <laughs> Uh, so let's finish our introductions. I'm Tom Irwin, and I'm, as ever, joined by my regular co-host, Steve Carroll. Um, we've got a very busy show today. Um, we've had a busy week, so Steve and I have both been off at the England Golf Awards, which also served as their centenary celebration. So we're going to have a chat through what we saw and heard and discussed at that event. Uh, we've got a few things. There's a few things going on, isn't there, in the world of men's professional golf, one or two. So we're going to get stuck into the goings-on at the Waste Management or the WM Phoenix Open last week. Try and bottom out how we feel about that. A lot of people have felt a lot of things about it online. We've got a uh, an old favourite as our readers' wines for, for us all to discuss. We want to chat, chat a bit about Tiger's comments in the press conference this week and, of course, his new clothing line. And there will, as ever, be a rules corner. It's a dead rubber, though, isn't it, Steve? It is. Don't rub it in too much because we've got many more series to do and your rules knowledge is obviously a bit, bit, a bit better than, uh, than you had suggested. So I might have to take you from level one to level two next time. It was described as championship standard, I think, last week. If you win this time, it'll be Premier League. Know, yeah. you'll, be, you'll be in the final. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where should we start? Let's start with the Phoenix Open, shall we? So I had to go about writing this on about writing about this online. Um, it's a funny old thing. Um, <clears throat> so listeners will hopefully be aware that the Phoenix Open is uh, it's a unique event. Should we say in golf, isn't it? Um, it's certainly unique on the PGA Tour. Um, it's phenomenally successful. I think that's the 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 first thing that's worth saying. It's very very famous for the stadium hole, the sixteenth which has kind of almost got like a wraparound build of grandstands. Um, so it's probably a, a totally unique thing in golf where people can sit and watch like you would, you'd be watching any other sport, drink beer, shout at the participants. Um, and it, and today it's been absolutely lauded um, by golf fans as being something sort of quite exceptional on the calendar, something that ever everyone looks forward to. One th- thing that's strange about it steve i reckon if you were going to write a list of pga tour events that you'd want to go to it would probably be number one wouldn't it um i don't think it would be number one for me um i'd prefer to be at riviera this week ahead of phoenix but as we've discussed that's because i'm a golf course nerd more than anything else i mean it's a pretty exciting week and people get up for it and i don't think there is another tournament where people queue like that and rush the gate like that um I think brings its own issues but um it's it's certainly taken on a life of its own hasn't it so it's um I mean, th- those clips that you see of people at basically in the middle of the night let's let's get it right like five o'clock in the morning six o'clock in the morning before it's even light they're kind of waiting to get in so they can secure their spot uh, on the 16th on the stadium hole 
Um, and that is that is brilliant sort of social media content. It's brilliant kind of to think that people are so desperate to get to a golf event that they're willing that they're willing to do that. It's kind of got kind of concert sort of fandom about it. Um, and that is like absolutely a positive. The numbers that they get through the gates are phenomenal. Like, have you read some of the numbers about attendees? It's like the population of Blackburn, isn't it? Basically turning up for a golf. It's like 200,000 plus, isn't it? It's ridiculous. It's no, like it's a, whole, it's a whole city. Over the week, it's way more than that. I think they get... Yeah, more, yeah, but I mean per day. I think um, they get nearer three quarters of a million over the, over the week, um, which for a golf event is just off the charts. So... I think the most, the highest ever attended open was something like quarter of a million, maybe slightly over 275,000, something of that nature. Um, and that is the biggest event on the golf calendar. Um, now, obviously, they do cap that slightly to kind of try and maintain fan experience at the open. But still, to be saying that, that, that a, a run of the mill tour event, let's be right about it, um, is getting nearly twice that number is absolutely ridiculous. Have you played Scottsdale? No. No, I've never been, obviously seen it. I mean, it's transformed itself hugely as well over the years. I mean, if you think about when Tiger played it and had that hole in one on the 16th, I mean, there's a lot of people around the back of the 16th, but it's not the massive football-type stand thing that's there now where where all hell is allowed to break loose, essentially. Well, I think in many ways, that I mean, that is one of the most iconic clips in golf, isn't it, of him making that hole in one? Um, I think that was probably tipping point that really sort of set it off in the direction that it's gone in. Um, I mentioned the golf course because we talk a lot about on this um, podcast about how much the quality of the golf course kind of impacts on our our pleasure or otherwise in terms of viewing these events. And Scottsdale, I mean, I don't want to do it down, but there is nothing special about the golf course. It's it's a de- it's a desert golf course. It's exceptionally well presented. Um, it obviously has got kind of rock and roll moments of of reachable par fives and all the rest of it, but it's not an architect's dream. Um, it's not somewhere this weekend we will be discussing the, the architectural qualities of the 10th, um, like it's going out of fashion. Um, and that is not the case at, uh, at Scottsdale at all. Um, so we're talking about a golf course, which, and an event, which is kind of, made its name and it has got a considerable name um outside of anything to do with the quality of the golf course and if you if you take the 16th as an example it's an entirely unremarkable par three that's become one of the most famous holes in golf yeah you beat me to it i mean i was i was queuing up to say that and you got there first i mean it's a pretty ordinary par three um the the what makes that shot amazing is the pressure from the crowd um, and that's and that's I mean it's it's kind of like a, a reverse sawgrass, isn't it? Because you've got all the water at sawgrass. That's the issue here. It's the sheer number of people hoping you shank it. Um, that's that's the prob that's the problem. I say that in inverted commas because I don't ne- I don't necessarily think the hole, and I don't necessarily think the stands, and I don't even necessarily think the numbers of people that come in are the problem with Phoenix. It's what they're allowed to get up to that's the issue. Yeah, if indeed it is an issue. Um, just to finish on the um, on the on the stadium hole. I mean, it's an, it is an interesting thing. You talk about the the crowd and the pressure the crowd brings in terms of wanting people to shank it. Um, I think I saw some stats from Clipped, um, who are kind of a data aggregator. You've got a very impressive bit of software that pulls in data from lots of different sources um, and helps people get better at golf. They've got some brilliant data around um, scoring averages on that 16th, and they are lower than 
par threes of similar length on the PGA Tour. So the scoring average on that hole um, is considerably lower than the norm. So it's an interesting thing when you wonder whether people are inspired by that or perhaps it might be an element of softer pins and a slightly sort of contrived element to it because obviously the organisers would quite like there to be birdies on that hole for obvious reasons. Um, but let's uh, ignore that reality for a minute and think the players are inspired by the noise that's created. Um, but players have been unhappy this weekend, haven't we? So we're talking about this kind of three or four days after the event's finished. Um, and I, I do think it was an interesting thing to watch because in the build-up to Phoenix, as there is every year and more and more every year, there's an awful lot of excitement about it. Um, people are heading there knowing it's going to be a party. Um, so we, that obviously some of that comes across on the broadcast. But I think for the US um, spectator on that West Coast, it's like it has become a date on the calendar. Uh, I am not comparing it to Ascot or Henley, but there are certain sporting events that sort of transcend their own kind of core audience. And Phoenix is absolutely that. It's become a big thing that is often in, near Super Bowl weekend. So it kind of like tries to piggyback on some of that um, fervor that's created around sport. And it's become something that golf fans attend, but an awful lot of casual golf fans, an awful lot of generally sports fans will attend just because it's great crack, right? Um, and in the run-up to it, we're, we're all kind of very supportive of that. And I think the debate this year, again, is about how uh, how golf needs more of these kind of events. I mean, players moan about stuff. You know, players whine. Players are generally unhappy. I mean, these people are some of the richest people on the planet and they're still unhappy about the amount of money they get. Hence all this SSG stuff, PIF stuff, live stuff. Um, so, I mean, they are kind of conceited breeds generally as a collective. Um, I do think when it gets into shouting on someone's downswing, it, 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 there's a line and it gets crossed. But nobody who signs up for Phoenix should be under any under any doubt about what they're going to receive when they get there. It's pretty well advertised. Now, we're, we're going to talk about whether that's correct or not, and I've got some views about it. But if you like, how on earth can you sign up for Phoenix and that, and then start whining about what people are doing during that event? You know what's coming. I'm not saying that's right. We're going to, we'll get into that discussion. And as I said, I've got some views about it. But, but like, if you go into, if you go, you know, if you go to the zoo and you go into like the lion's den, right? There's a fair chance the lion might come out and bite you. You know, you, you, you know what you're doing. You know what the possibility is before you go into the enclosure. And I think it's the same with Phoenix. So I sort of take player moans with a bit of a pinch of salt. I mean, these are the same people who moan if if, if, if the greens aren't uniform across the golf course. I, I just think players players get asked, to be fair to them, players get asked questions. Top-class sport is emotional. Um, they're often asked leading questions by people like me immediately after something's happened to them. And occasionally you'll get an emotional response. But that's... That, uh, let me give that other side of the coin as well for a little bit of balance. Yeah, so what, Steve, what Steve's um, alluding to here is that we're now after the event and we've, we've, we've sort of moved in terms of an online narrative or a discussion that was a week ago was kind of praising this event and saying this is exactly what golf need more of. And we're now uh, three days after and all we've had online is kind of hand-wringing and uh, criticism of uh, the type of behavior at the event. So to give listeners a flavor, we've had Zach Johnson shouting at um, fans. We've had Jordan Spieth shouting at fans. We've had spectators in like literal, actual fisticuff brawls. We've had people falling down hills. Uh, we've had people doing snow angels in bunkers. Um, I think that's probably 
about enough examples. I can't think of anything else that I've seen online, but just an awful lot of like pretty bad behavior. Yeah, like a UK town on a Friday night. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we now we now sort of the, now the debate is around, and the organisers, sorry, what is worth saying is that the behaviour got so bad or so out of hand that the entry was actually closed over the weekend, so more people couldn't get on the property. Um, as I understand it, the kind of the sort of drinking thing is actively encouraged. Like it's very easy to get a beer around the sixteenth. People are encouraged to be raucous. So on the one hand, the event is sort of courting it. But we're now at a point where pe- players are saying they won't go back and play. Um, we're at a point where people are saying it's a, a step too far, saying this is you know, not something that golf needs as, as, as part of its makeup. Um, so I think it is worth debating because like, I think there are sort of lots and lots of facets to it. Um, I've sort of had a go at trying to say one one aspect of what I think um, in a blog that I've written for NCG. And I think it's it's a funny thing in golf because – we're sort of desperate to be liked, aren't we? So the kind of, it's a centuries old game, which has a reputation for being sort of stuffy. We're going to talk about dress codes a little bit later. Um, we, we get a bad rap from uh, cooler sports, shall we say. We're not seen as trendy. We're not seen as youthful. We're often not seen as fun. Um, so I think when there is an opportunity to portray ourselves like that, as Phoenix undoubtedly is, we sort of grab it with both hands and we massively double down on it. I don't think it's unique to Phoenix in terms of the sport's attitude to trying to present its kind of its, its younger self, if you like. I think that's exactly what the Ryder Cup has tapped into, where we've got kind of baying crowds, big crowds. Um, we've got things like thunderclaps and the guardians of the Ryder Cup and matching outfits where we're trying to say, yeah, we can have a raucous crowd too. We can like tap into this tribal mentality. So, but then we are, but we are also at the end of the day, a sport that is predominantly played by older middle-class people predominantly. And when it oversteps a mark, and I'm not sure where that mark is in my head, but certainly in a lot of people's minds this weekend, Phoenix has overstepped that mark that we don't like it. I've been at an open where I've seen people being carried out drunk. Um, so it's the scale of it rather than, rather than what individuals get up to. The issue at Phoenix is it's been going down a certain line for quite a long time. I have no issue actually with with people having a good time. I've no particular issue with the the sort of crowd scenes and the, and the raucous behaviour. On the one hand, you can't court it like they did at the 2012 Ryder Cup, where everyone's telling the crowd, where the players are telling the crowd to get involved and then dictate to them, you know, when and how they should get involved. The issue for me. And the reason I think it's gone too far is the scale of it. And, and and it's the scale of the disorder, if I want to put that in inverted commas. You know, when you've got people fighting, like openly fighting, when you've got people chucking themselves down the hill, when you've got people doing snow angels in bunkers, they're, they're disrupting the game at that point, right? Um, you know, no one goes to a football ground and expects it to be silent. Right, it's a different sport, golf. Clearly, but I'm not trying to make the similar comparison. But there are more. But but the, but the sport is supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be fun. You're supposed to have a good time. But they've been leading there. This tournament has been going down the road towards this now for several years. And the the the, the behaviour has been getting worse over a period of time, and nobody's done anything about it. And it 
if you remember a couple of years ago, Tom, on the 16th, when they were all chucking beer cans on the green after a shot, hundreds of them flying down onto the course. And this was celebrated as if it was like hilarious. Well, it disrupted play. And that was a time when you could have stepped in and you could have said, come on, you know, we, we want to have a bit of fun here, but this is going a bit too far. I use the, when I think about this, I use the kind of nuclear war analogy, which is that society is like held together quite thinly and you've got rules and you've got law and you've got order. But when something breaks down, people will, people will just do what they want. Um, and if you give an inch, they'll, you'll take a mile. And that's what I feel has been happening with Phoenix for quite a long time now, that the, that the order, that the rules around it have just been relax, relax, relax. Oh, we can get away with this, right? Can we try and get away with this? Oh, look, we got away with this. How far can we go? People will go as far as you like unless, un unless you impose some structure. Um, and, you know, the, the nuclear war analogy is a good one, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, like society would just completely break down and everyone would be killing each other because because that's what they would be able to do. There's no structure around it. And why, why you can't take that comparison and basically box it right next to the Phoenix Open? I, I think you get what I'm trying to say here, that the kind of what's been deemed acceptable has been widened now over a period of time. It's going to be very difficult to put it back in that box. People go there expecting to be able to do this sort of thing. And just because the organizers say, oh, you know, it's gone too far, we'll stop it next year. As you said, Tom, there's three quarters of a million people go to this event. They were completely powerless to stop it over the weekend, weren't they? Well, yeah, I think, you, I mean, you really have gone nuclear, like quite literally on your views there. But I, I think you sort of, you touch on a couple of interesting points. Like the football analogy to me, is like very relevant um, because I go to football matches. We all go to football matches and it's, it's a very sort of tribal sort of visceral experience. And we all enjoy a kind of shout as much as the next person, but the environment is kind of set up for that. So you are in your seat, you are stewarded, you are policed. Uh, and there is something sacrosanct about the plane area, like the odd stripper or pitch invader aside, like it, you don't cross the white, you literally don't cross the white line. Do you? So I think, and football has gone a long way to make make its environment more more safe. It's gone a long way to attract more families. It's gone a long way to attract a more diverse audience. Um, and it feels like this event is taking golf in an entirely different direction. It's it's kind of almost courting that that kind of behaviour. Um, I think the other thing that you touch on is like the the kind of where it becomes a problem is where it affects the 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 playing of the game or it affects, affects play in a golf sense. There's also a massive element of player safety because it doesn't matter how many stewards or police you've got. If you've got um, 250 acres to try and cover, to try and make sure that no one is doing what they shouldn't, that's impossible. So you are reliant on the other point you made, which is this kind of social code that you kind of go to these things, understanding there are limits in terms of behavior. Um, so I think that is, that is a, that I would say is a big concern. So you're kind of chastising players for moaning. I'd be worried if I was a player that someone was going to come and thump me or push me over or whatever else, because there's nothing stopping them. If the social code is broken, there's what is stopping them doing that? Um, so I think it's an interesting thing. I think if you'd asked me this time last week what I thought about Phoenix, I'd probably be saying, yeah, I think it's great. It's once a year. It's a big party. If I live down the road, I'll be there every year. Like, why wouldn't you be? Um, I think now, I think, yeah, but it probably has gone a step too far. But I think more more pertinently for me, it's like what happens next? Because you can't just keep making this thing bigger, noisier, worse behaved, 
more funner or whatever the expression is at some point you kind of re- you reach a point in that journey where you have to say actually enough's enough um i did a very bad tweet about it where i think it's jumped the shark which is a kind of media expression based out of fonzie from the happy days remember him yes i am old enough unfortunately are you familiar with the expression uh, jump the shark, not necessarily jump the shark. So you're, not, you're, you're not the only ones who've used it over the last few days. So. Is that right? Everyone was very happy that uh, Fonz could like do things other people couldn't and everything always fell into his lap until one day he was water skiing and he managed to hit a ramp at a fortuitous moment where he jumped over a shark in the pond. And then the viewers of Happy Day said, actually, no, that's too much, it's just unrealistic. And I think that's what's happened to the Phoenix Open this week, it's jump the shark. Yeah, I mean, I'd like, be back. I'd like to, I'd like to sort of clarify my juxtaposition between player moaning and um, the general nature of a crowd. My, my player moaning is not about people disrupting their swings, people disrupting their games, people disrupting the play. Uh, my point about player moaning was more about this idea of the general rowdiness when when you when you know what you get you know what you're going to get if you enter that event and i i do believe that the, the line got crossed strongly actually um at phoenix um but as i said and as you're pointing out i don't know how they put it back in the box because i don't think unless you've got a massive security presence there next year People will just do what they want to do at this event. Yeah, they might be playing because you can't imagine many players are going to turn up. But yeah, I mean, and that's another thing about the tournament, isn't it? It's, you know, it, it's its success is unbelievable when you consider the strength of fields generally. It has had great, a lot of great players who've played in it in the past. Tiger obviously has. John Rahm's been particularly remorseful, hasn't he, about not being able to go to Phoenix, having jumped shit for live. Um, that was one of the really interesting comments that came out pre-tournament. But, you know, it's not Riviera, is it? No, it really isn't. Yeah. But as ever, this sort of news narrative moves on like really, really quickly in golf these days, doesn't it? So that was last week. This week, we've had Tiger Woods is ever at the cent- at the, right at the centre of uh, the big debates in golf. He's launched his own clothing line. Uh, and he's spoken for the first time about the investment into um, the PGA Tour's new product and where that leaves the potential merger or potential partnership with the PIF and with Liv. Um, so we start with his clothes, Steve. Come on, you're a big, you're a big sort of apparel fan, aren't you? I do. Um, I do like a jazzy piece of kit. I don't mind it. Um, Would you buy it? Would you buy it? That's my first question. Would do you reckon you, you're going to? Are you going to be like pre-ordering? uh sunday red whatever it's called no um but that's not because i don't like elements of it i think the hoodie's really nice actually the the, the black hoodie with the beard. I, I like the logo people are going crazy about the logo i actually quite like it um I, I don't mind it at all and i really like the black hoodie what i mean i have to be a bit careful here because a lot of this stuff is supposition and, and we don't you know, there's very little official news, is there, about Sunday Red, but some of the prices I've seen for some of this clothing feel like a bit on the high side. I mean, there's there's a very big trade, isn't there, in the moment in expensive golf clothing. Um, you know, like the days of days of you picking up a polo for 30 quid seem to be long gone. You know, we've we've had a few years ago the likes of Kejus, now we've got Malbon, haven't we? And and those are that are charging like lots of money. But even by those standards. I mean, some of the prices I've seen for the polos, they're, they're, this is a big price range, obviously, but they're projected to be between $115 and $175. That's insane. 
for for a plain red polo shirt. That's that's bonkers. It's absolutely nuts. Um, and then we're talking about. I think they're talking about the um, the cashmere because obviously Tiger loves cashmere. Um, the um, the cashmere jumpers coming in at something like I think it's like two hundred and fifty dollars or something like that between two hundred and fifty and three hundred. What's this? What's this? Tiger loves cashmere. Where have you got that from? He seems to. Always, I don't know, but. Um, is that like yeah. in his? Is that like in his Twitter bio? Like oh, yeah, cashmere. Exactly. But but we're talking we're talking about you know a lot of money for look we haven't we haven't seen it all have we at the moment? Um, we've seen like little bits of it, and we've seen the bits that Tiger Tiger's wearing. So um, I mean, I didn't like the big white trousers. Um, I did quite like the shoes. I thought the shoes were all right if you like that traditional style. But it's interesting that I just find it interesting generally that Tiger's been held up as some sort of fashion icon. This was a guy who's billowing trousers in the early noughties were like the thing of legend, weren't they, for their ridiculousness? Well, not to mention his jeans. His jeans are always sort of a, something to behold, aren't they? Well, well do... we're going to get on. We're going to get on to jeans. But anyway, um, I, I, do, I do like elements of the clothing. I do not like the, the suggested prices. If the RRP comes in a bit less then obviously i'll take a look but i mean i'm not there'll be there'll be look tiger doesn't need me buying them there'll be plenty of people getting their wallets out straight away and pre-ordering but i i i talk a lot about price on this podcast i can't consistently say golf courses are getting too expensive golf equipment's getting too expensive and then not look at the fact that someone's trying to charge 165 dollars or whatever it is for a polo shirt because you're, you're a populist at the end of the day you know it's a free hit say things too expensive everyone are going yes i steve i i totally agree with you things are well, too I mean, expensive because and you joke at me about this because i buy still quite a lot of stuff i think like i'm a good lightning rod for whether whether something's acceptable or not, and would you honestly would you pay one hundred and fifteen to one hundred and sixty five dollars for a polo shirt? No, I wouldn't. No, I'd go to the outlet village or next or one of those things that spams about Instagram and say buy one of these five five for a ten or whatever they are. The um, I might be pants actually. The um, the thing I the thing I find quite slightly strange about it is, and you sort of touched on it, is that. Tiger's really, really good at hitting long irons and holding clutch putts, and he's like phenomenal at playing golf. It's kind of this this thing that people think that because he's good at that, he's going to be good at everything else. And in in this sort of latest incarnation of Tiger, where he's all things to all people, and he's opening up more than he used to do in his prime, one of the things that people think is is he's funny. So we get these clips of these like one liners that he's handing out to Jordan Spieth or JT or whoever he's been paired with this week. Um, this week's one was about a little joke that he made about driving through Jordan Spieth. It, it definitely wasn't funny, but that doesn't stop everyone else on Twitter sort of piling in and go, look, Tiger 4.0 is just incredible. And well, he handed something to Justin Thomas that wasn't deemed quite so funny, well, didn't he? So. Funny but, the, but I think the same applies to apparel. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how this has been a long time in the making and kind of this is something that he's always wanted to do once he was free of the sort of Nike relationship. I think it's quite an odd thing. I, I can't see myself buying something with like Tiger's name on it. It's something like I'm the, the biggest Tiger fan, I think, from a from a sporting point of view. But I think there's a, there's a line in terms of fanboyism, isn't there? For once you get to a certain age, like you can't be going around like with someone else's motif on your back. Would you buy a football shirt and get a player's name on the back? Um, I have done when in the past, and at football, I do wear a retro 
Middlesbrough shirt with Mendieta on the back. But I've no, had it. That, that's, my, that's, to- that's totally different. If you in my defence, it's been yeah. in my possession for 20 years. I mean, I was a much younger person when I got it. But you're sort of saying something else by that, aren't you? You're saying, yeah, you're saying oh, I've been doing this for 20 years and you're just making sure people don't don't misunderstand that. Um, I can, like, what other what other examples are there in golf of, of kind of player branded clothing? I guess there was Greg Norman's shark range, wasn't there? Well, the, Greg, Greg Norman's shark range still exists, I think, in the bargain bins of some golf outlets. Yeah. But I mean, generally, what I've seen, I mean, God, I get so much grief for saying this. Um, but, you know, if I want, I'm, I'm getting perilously close towards 50. Um, I'm not there yet. There's still a couple of years to go. But once I start eyeing up, a Greg Norman pair of slacks with some admiration. It might, <laughs> it, it might, it might be time to pack in um, because I'll have officially gone over the hill. I'm trying to think, what other players might get away with some branded clothing? Like I don't know, McElroy could have like a little logo of that time he ripped his shirt, or wagging a finger at a caddy in a car park. I'm not sure. I mean, I can't, I can't think of anyone who'd be a bigger McElroy fan than me. But I still couldn't. I don't know if I could see myself buying some McElroy branded clothing. Anyway. I've never bought I've never bought any golf clothing because a golfer was in it. I've bought golf clothing that a golfer might have worn because I've liked said clothing. Mm. Um but you know I I mean I must confess I did have like in the early noughties, I did have a mock polo. Uh like the mock turtle sorry, the mock turtleneck, the tiger red mock turtleneck. I've still got it somewhere, I think. Um I did look quite good in it. I used to think at that time. I'm now about, I'm, I'm now about three stone heavier with 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 kind of like a middling age paunch, and I can confirm that you look a lot less good in it um, when you're carrying any sort of baggage. Yeah. So I think this brings us nicely onto this week's readers' wines. <laughs> Reader's Wines is a regular feature, which is a play on Reader's Wives from a popular magazine in the 90s. It's where we look at some comments that have been made online uh, about an article we published or something we've said on social media, and we're particularly taken or amazed at the kind of reader reaction to that story. And this week is an age-old topic in golf, still a thorny topic, and it's dress codes. Um, So we published an article uh, this week, which was kind of about dress codes in general, um, mainly about denim, had some very funny one-liners in it about golf's uh, opposition to denim and how we're kind of anti-denim for reasons that are kind of unexplainable. And every time you publish something on dress codes, you think, nah, no one's going to read this. No one's going to comment on that. This can't be a thing that people are still triggered by. But they are, aren't they? It's incredible that people are still willing to go and argue about what we should and shouldn't be wearing. Um, to give you a bit of a flavour, I would say that the the vast majority of people, um, certainly on our Facebook page, are still falling on the signs of, but denim's got no place in golf. We still need to be upholding standards. Um, there are people who are saying, like, wear what you want, doesn't make any difference. Um, but it is still a triggering, divisive topic for people. Uh, and it is pretty salient this week when you've got the world's most famous golfer using a clothing line one of the arguments that people make about um, dress codes is it impacts on um, behavior and it's all about upholding standards in general. And I think that that was interesting to see whether the the people who were misbehaving at the waste management were all wearing jeans or whether they were in golf attire. So it's, a, it's, a, it's still a hot topic, isn't it? For a lot, lot of people in golf clubs, Steve. Well, it's a, a hot topic in golf clubs for people of a certain age, I would largely say. 
Um, I I don't wear jeans on the golf course. Uh, I don't wear jeans on the golf course because I don't find them comfortable. Um, if I wanted to wear jeans on the golf course, I, I probably would. I'd try to. Um, I don't have any issue with people who wear jeans on the golf course. I think the I think the the thing about standards is such a lazy argument, and it's it's such a lazy conclusion that if you allow people to wear jeans, everything will fall down on its backside at the golf course. And it's presented by people who have zero evidence for saying that because they only ever play at their own golf course where there are no jeans allowed. So how can you possibly know whether jeans will bring down the social order of life at the golf club when you don't allow them and you've never seen it on the whole? Um <sighs> It's. I mean, I, I. You made the point about the Phoenix Open. I went and had a look at some of the images of people behaving in a way that other people might not think was appropriate at the Phoenix Open. They were all wearing golf gear or, or relevant golf gear or golf hats or you know, kind of um, that kind of sort of middle layer that's really popular among golfers. They're all the majority of people I've seen are wearing that sort of kit. So this this kind of uh, argument that persists when you talk about this of right well if you allow people to wear jeans everyone's going to be fighting in the car park afterwards i've seen plenty of people fighting at golf clubs over the years none of them have been wearing jeans where's the correlation there's a similar argument a few years ago about hoodies do you remember and tyrrell, Hatton, tyrrell hatton's hoodie obviously at the um at, at, at the BMW at Wentworth, and there was that golf club the next day, wasn't there, that sent out a missive basically saying hoodies are banned and will essentially got worldwide, worldwide scorn for it. Um, are hoodies even a thing now for people at golf clubs? I wear a hoodie nearly every time I play. I play at a lot of golf clubs. No one blinks an eyelid at me anymore. So things change, right? And, and quotes, standards, in inverted commas, change as well. And I'm never going to convert people on this, right? It doesn't matter how passionate about it. The only the only way this will change is as generations change. And I've written about this in the past, that all the people who whine about dress codes will die and the dress code will change, as it has. We no longer play in tweed anymore. We don't wear a tie to play golf anymore. You know, the, the progression is linear and as it and as um, and as a new generation comes along, they will wear different things. We're in a very strange position, you and I, because I think we're in that kind of, we're, we're both 47, 46, 47. Um, and we're at this kind of midpoint where we're right in the center of the change because the people who are above us, uh, and I'm generalizing to a point, there'll obviously be people our age and younger who think genes are a monstrosity as well. But, but, but generalizing, People who are sort of above us, who are running golf clubs at the moment, have a very clear view of what they think good golf club attire is. There's a younger generation below us that have an incredibly different view to this generation that are running the clubs. And then there's us in the middle, and we're kind of at the point, you know, I wear a hoodie on a golf course, so do you. You know, I kind of embrace both bits of the debate. Um, but I'll never be able to change people people's opinions on jeans. I just think we're wasting our breath. I've wasted five minutes of my life here talking about a situation that we're going to talk about again probably in six months' time, and we'll be talking about again until the generation moves on and shuffles off. So I think I'm sort of broadly right there with you. I think there are there are some counter views, and I think the counter views are like I think it is still the majority in terms of our audience, which tend to be 
people who are golf club members or people who are playing regularly. Um, but I mean, dress codes matter, standards matter. Um, there's an awful lot of talk about that kind of thing. And that just to pay devil's advocate, that does sort of speak to what you were saying earlier about the behavior at the Phoenix Open. Not that it's linked to what people wear, but what there is is a, there's a breaking of a social code. And I think that what is and isn't allowed, what is, is and isn't expected, that sort of does become a thing. So I'm not that saying that you can't behave badly in a tuxedo. Goodness me, we tried that on Tuesday. <laughs> but what I am saying is that I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that is the point. I think the point is that you're coming into a golf environment where certain things are expected and that is just one of them. Um, so I think that is, that's one element of it. One of the strongest arguments I always think, and like I say, I am an advocate, as I've said before, you can do what you want as far as I'm concerned, as long as it's not affecting me and genes are certainly not affecting me. One of the things that people say is that golf is a sport like any other. And just in the same way that when you turn up to play football, you wear football boots and shorts and a football top. But when you turn up to play golf, you wear golf clothes. That argument is so bad because it ignores history. And the point of football kits was to distinguish two teams from each other. That was it. That's the entire purpose of it. It wasn't built on some social code, code, sorry. It wasn't about, you know, we should, we, we shouldn't be allowed to wear this and you shouldn't be allowed to wear that. It was literally so the two teams could play the game and not pass the ball to each other. <laughs> right. So you're saying that golf doesn't actually have a sort of a tire. I think, I think it's, I think it's an interesting point that people make though because i think it is possibly the most relevant if any of these points are relevant one thing that i just find that's quite sad about it is that you can play golf in anything so again rather than sort of comparing us to other sports and saying that there is a sort of golf uniform we should be making a virtue of the fact actually you don't have to wear uh, golf clothes you can wear whatever you want and that might be a nice counter argument to people saying the golf's more expensive and we could say yes whilst you have to wear hardware you can just turn up in your MS slacks and no one cares what you wear. And that it, sh- it could be a virtue, but it still is triggering for people. And I think you're absolutely right, is that the world is moving on to a degree. So you see more uh, collarless shirts now than you used to. You definitely see more hoodies, but denim is still the devil. Yeah, as, as Clive said, you know, de- denim is still golf's greatest enemy. And, and wh- where I where I think it does become much more of it, we can have this argument as much as we want. And, and, and as I said, and people will get triggered by it. And at the end of the day, we'll all still go and play our golf. But where, where I think it does become an issue, and Paul Laurie talked about it when he was on the pod a couple of weeks ago, is when it, is when it becomes a barrier to participation because those young people don't want to wear this stuff. And Paul has, Paul said, didn't he, how he recognised that and how his facility is different in that sense for those people. And there are a, a growing number of golf clubs out there that have different rules, don't they, I think, for those who are getting into the game that aren't imposing this code on them because they understand that until you become ingrained in the game, it can be off-putting. Well, I mean, that feels daft to me in itself that we have a sport that goes two-tiered because, you know, we don't want to upset some people on the one hand but while they're getting into the sport, but we need to tell them that when they do get into the sport, you better conform. You know, it's just, oh, it's a mess. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but we'll move on. So we've had a, we've had a nice time this week, haven't we, Steve? We've been over in Manchester at the England Golf Awards and Centenary Dinner, to give it its full title, which was at the Midland Hotel in Manchester. And it was there for a reason, because that's where the English Golf Union, as it was at the time, was formed in 1924. Uh, it was a really good night. We've been before. Um, I think it's worth talking about, because there, there's, there's quite a lot to it, wasn't there? There's 450 people there for a start. Well, 
you've been you've been there before. It was my first. Was it? Even yeah, even though I've been a <laughs> I've been a judge <laughs> for about four years now. Um, it was the first time I've been able to go. Um, and yeah, I mean, so many people there that we were basically like chair to chair, weren't we? Um, in the yeah. Midland Hotel, and, and a fascinating array of people as well, you know, from some big golf media industry types, you know, like sponsors, obviously, like big brands, um, to, you know, sort of 12 year old junior volunteers who were trying to give back. Um, so the game, I thought it was a fascinating crowd. I really enjoyed being part of it. My head is just about cleared. It was yeah, I'm getting, quite, I'm getting quite a lot of worrying emails from people saying things like "Nice to see you on Tuesday. Hope you've recovered," which I'm not. I'm not sort of sure what they're implying. But anyway, let's not talk about that. The um, there were a few th- interesting things. I thought that this new concept of a Hall of Fame is pretty interesting, um, and the, the type of people who've been inducted into that. Um, so people like Michael Banalak, um, obviously very famous amateur golfer from the 70s, Secretary of the RNA, Alison Nicholas, Gerald Micklem, Peter McAvoy, Trish Johnson, Gary Walsenholm, Georgia Hall, Peter Alice, Dame Laura Davis, Nick Faldo, Bridget Jackson, and Luke Donald. These are all people who England golf feel have contributed in some way to um, their legacy and their history over the 100-year period. There's some great names in there who've contributed, I think, at all different parts of the game. Um, so that was a big part of the evening. And then they awarded 11 awards to people from um, different levels of the amateur game who in some way are kind of touched by England golf. Um, so you had people, clubs like Bedfordshire winning Club of the Year, County of the Year winning Devon Golf, which is a lot, it's kind of a combination, I think, of the performances, their elite team, and also what they've done to try and drive participation, develop golf um, in that county. Uh, diversity inclusion champion was Nicola Bennett, um, who many of you know is a PGA professional and a very, very good golfer. Um, the participation and development coach of the year was Alex McGregor from Ad- Addington Court. Performance of the year was Chris Kim. Um, that is to do with elite golf. So he's someone who's had an exceptional year in the British Boys and the Junior Ryder Cup. Um, the sustainability project of the year was Colmworth in Bedfordshire. I have to say hard luck to Kenick Park in Lincolnshire, where my one of my oldest and dearest friends, Paul Spence, is pro. And he turned up to collect his award, but was beaten by, uh, I'm sure, a very worthy winner in Colmworth in Bedfordshire. Uh, tournament venue of the year was Shinfell in Shropshire. So that was a venue that's selected from um, venues that have hosted an England golf tournament throughout the year. Uh, and the volunteer of the year was Abby Frodsham from Wall- Wallasey in Cheshire. Um, so there's a whole host of different things being accredited on the evening. Um, one of the things that stood out to me, Steve, is just how reliant the game is um, at club level on amateurs. Well, game's dead without it. Um, and that's where you, and whether you start from your... Um, average club committees, obviously, of which I'm on one and you're on one, you know, going through to the counties and, and all of those people that, I mean, it's like the sheer scale of what people do for golf, isn't it? In, in this country and in every country as well. I mean, it's not just England everywhere, but the sheer scale of what people do from, um, the guy who got the lifetime service award, um, who basically spent more than 40 years getting juniors into golf. I mean, incredible dedication, incredible effort um, there. You know, a lifetime almost, you know, spent developing the next generation of players. And then you see some of the initiatives that um, the Jersey ladies were doing, for example, um, where they recognised that at three of the lesser-known clubs on the island, they were having some trouble 
um, recruiting female members. So they all clubbed together and offered three free taster sessions, free as in F-R-E-E, um, to people to get them involved. Um, and the number of members that they've then recruited into their golf clubs as a result of that scheme, it's, it's just phenomenal what people are doing. You know, Nicola's story was absolutely fantastic. Um, Chris Kim's, you know, to, to go on elite performance, to win the tournaments that he did as a 16-year-old, you know, the sort of like the Fairhaven and the British boys. And I think there was another, there was a McGregory one as well, then turned up and helped England win the the um, the home the home internationals as well, played a decent role, starring role in the Junior Ryder Cup. I mean, like it's every level of the game, Tom, isn't it? It's every facet is covered. Yeah, I think the sort of the type of um, roles you um, you cover in terms of amateur support is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Um, and with all due respect to the PGA professional, I think kind of props up many clubs and general managers who are educated by via various governing bodies there's still huge reliance on people and i think junior golf is an area where that is absolutely the case like junior organizers people who are willing to put in time to um host kids clinics and organize junior golf tournaments and attract children from the local area are almost always volunteers um, and that was a, a really big theme wasn't it on on Tuesday night was um, that element of the volunteering. Um, I, I can tell you for nothing that the ladies from the Jersey Ladies Golf Development can drink. They were last man standing in the bar. Um, had a lot of interesting things to say. But they've done a phenomenal job on um, a very small island with very few people of getting kind of 40 or 50 new women playing golf over the last 12 months. That's like an amazing thing from a very small population. And they're not doing that to earn money. They're doing that just to champion a sport that they absolutely love. And like you've, you've also discounted yourself in that. Like So rules officials at, at county events and all but one or two of the county officials that organise those events are volunteers. This is a, like a massive, massive population of people that are just making stuff happen at grassroots level. Um, so I thought that um, it's always heartening to go to that. It's always heartening to hear those stories. I think we're going to try and do some more on it in terms of um, getting some people on who were accredited that evening, whether it's Graham in his Lifetime Achievement Award um, or the county, uh, the Club of the Year at Bedfordshire. Um, but we will look at some of the stuff um, raised in more in more detail because I think these people deserve the profile. And it was an amazing kind of... Um, a thing like as you say in terms of in terms of the room because the room really does bring together people from kind of all facets of it of 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 golf so nick doherty was hosting it um and equally we had sort of my friend from home in lincolnshire and i don't think those people are often in the same room and i think that's absolutely brilliant um nick was there hosting but also kind of representing his role as uh, president of the golf foundation a role that he's been doing for about 18 months and his kind of big cause is he's trying to get um golf onto the curriculum in all state schools uh, in England, which is a massive um, ambition, I think. Yeah, I think he, so we did um, a piece with Nick when he started this, um, which was last year, if my memory serves. I'm, I'm just, if you were, if it was last September, so if you just bear with me, I will, I will get the piece up. Um, it was officially launched in September, but we talked about it earlier. We talked about it much earlier in the year. I think the scheme is something, I mean, they're looking at like 15 million pounds, I think. And the idea is that um, they want a deliverable scheme um, that, a, that a PGA Pro can do, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a pre PGA Pro. It can be like a PE teacher. It could be someone who's interested in golf. So they, so they develop this scheme that, 
um, is cost effective. Obviously, you have to get hold of kit, and that's the majority of the expense. Um, but the training of it and the delivering of it is can be done by multiple people because golf at the moment is you think about how it's delivered. You either you know I've got an eight year old. I either take her to a taster day at a golf club or a PGA pro comes into the school and does some coaching. That's I mean that's incredibly time dependent on the PGA pro who is a person wearing many hats, are they not? Um, not least, you know, their own desire and need to make income. Um, and when you go into sort of the season, I think it becomes very difficult for, for it to just be delivered by the one person, doesn't it? Um, so the idea is to try and widen this out. But, but I mean, there are, it's, it's, it's a very, very worthy scheme, um, which is why I've got into it in the way that I have, because I'm, I think sort of any, anything that aspires to do something for the benefit of the game should be backed but we're talking about thirty-two thousand schools here as well on the other side and and from a logistical um from a logistical point of view it's enormous i mean it's barely even imaginable isn't it um so credit to nick for for giving this a go and it'll be interesting to see tom you know, I think we're going to try and get him on at some point to talk about um, how it's going and, and, and how the scheme is progressing and what they've been able to do so far. But I'll just say, I mean, I asked him um, when I spoke to him a year ago, I said to him, what's your vision? Because every school's got a football pitch. They've got an athletics track. They've got a basketball hoop. No school has a golf course on it. Um, and he was saying he understood that it was a grandiose ambition. It might seem quite unrealistic. It's certainly very expensive. It would cost about 15 million if we were starting from scratch just to provide the equipment. It's about changing the mentality in schools and getting across the message of what golf does better than other sports. I struggle to be convinced there is any other sport that does a better job of teaching some key life skills. If you can show the benefits of the, of, of the sport, golf will be the byproduct because we know when you play the game, people just generally fall in love with it. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think you're absolutely right. The, amb the ambitions to be implored, applauded, and it's kind of quite good to hear uh, that statement around how how it is recognised that it's kind of grandiose and expensive. And like goodness me, you want to be supportive of anything that is trying to grow the game and trying to get uh, more young people playing. Just think, it feels incredibly difficult thing to do. So I'm a um, chair of governors at my um, local primary school, two primary schools, and the battle that you face at school level in terms of getting anything done is is massive so there's an awful lot of um stretch on resources at school level and i don't mean that just in terms of staffing i mean what the staff are actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis so to get to point to get them to point at something that is kind of non-core is a very very big ask and i also think there's like there is a, there is a very very little space on the school curriculum not necessarily in terms of after school activities but certainly on school curriculums for anything new one of the challenges that golf has got i think in terms of being recognized as a sport on a school curriculum is just the idea of movement so certainly at primary level um, a lot of the sporting activities are about getting people moving so the kind of football for example is obviously a thing things like basketball things like netball but really what schools are trying to achieve is getting as, as kids moving around for as long as possible so that might be as simple as a game of tag or it might be as simple as a walk it's about activity necessarily not necessarily a, a specific sport um, so that is, that is certainly one challenge golf faces. 
I think that the, the kind of bigger question for me, and I kind of understand that a kind of a, a pipeline has to start somewhere. And the more people you can pour in the top of a funnel, the more more children and the more young adults you'll end up with playing golf at the end of it. But what happens after a child's enjoyed um, golf at, at school in in a, in a weekly lesson or in a monthly lesson? What how, how does that person then convert into being a golfer? Um, so my own experiences in terms of getting into golf were like I think pretty haphazard. My parents didn't play, um, and I sort of found the sport on a family holiday and sort of got asked to be taken by my my long suffering mum and dad. And then I was kind of fortunate that my secondary school was next to a golf club, and it made it sort of really easy for me to kind of continue that journey. I'm now a parent, um, and I'm a parent who forces my two boys to, to play as much sport as possible, and I find it really really hard to get to get golf some space in terms of our diary. So kind of football comes to them because it's in the local village or their mates play. There's kind of peer pressure to go and do it. Similar with rugby, similar with cricket. These are all sort of team sports. They like going because their mates all play and their schoolmates all play. Um, and it's easy because it's local clubs. If I want to get them to go to golf, I have to take them. It's often that their friends aren't there because there's, there's obviously fewer parents who play. So even for me, who is probably as invested as anybody as a lifetime golfer and someone who owns a golf business who would really like his kids to fall in love with the sport, it's just difficult to find space for it. So I would love to see this scheme succeed. I would love to chat to Nick about it. But I mean, goodness me, that is that is a huge challenge. Yes, I would agree. Um, and it's not it's not straightforward anyway. I mean, I, as I, I say a lot of times on this podcast, I have an eight-year-old girl. Um, she has no interest in golf whatsoever. I've obviously tried not to push her into sport or to golf, but I think she resents golf. It's something that takes her dad away. Um, yeah. you know, where's, where, where's, where's my dad? Well, he's doing some golf thing again. <laughs> um, so I, I do think there is some resistance, like on a psychological level to golf. I am away from her because of golf, right? Mm. So um, she, I don't think she's necessarily massively sporty anyway. Um, she does like to run and coincidentally that's something that her mum does and it's something that she does with her mum so um but you know like like you say you know you, you run a golf business I write for a golf magazine um and yet our kids are mine is stubbornly resistant to golf yours would rather do football and rugby and and if we're the it, it, it is difficult if we're you would think our kids would be the ones that would be the easiest to get them into the game and and yet it isn't well, so, sorry, I don't think my children, are, they don't necessarily prefer something else. I just think it, it's easier to get them to do it. And I think Nick's point is absolutely right. Is that often when you get people doing it, they do fall in love with it. I think my kids are sort of showing that they have done, actually. They're sort of frustrated by the same things, but they're taking massive pleasure in hit, when they hit a good shot. And when we do get there with their friends, like it is, a, it is a very different social occasion for them because they're chatting away to their mates whilst playing a sport. It's brilliant for all the reasons that we know. I'm just saying it's hard to carve out time for that. So this sort of idea that there's going, it's, we'll be able to carve out time in a school curriculum, I think that's one challenge. I think the second challenge is kind of what happens next. Like what's the pipeline for that kid who's had a good experience on uh, a school taster session at, um, at his primary or his secondary school? Anyway, I think we should get on to the main event, don't you? This wow. is your one. This is your one chance to claw back some some pride. Demonstrate that you know more than the rest of us. Let's have a look at rules corner this week, shall we? I feel like 
I'm being taken advantage of here. Um, I, you know, I, I, I want to put forward some fair rules questions. And because I've put across some fair ones, you're now just lording it over me because you're four one and might go five one. And then I then and then you got me to promise halfway through this that I wouldn't ratchet up the difficulty next season. Um, and as some sort of spiteful way of getting you back. And now I feel like I'm between a rock and a hard place. But anyway, um, let's see if I can reduce this to four two instead of five one. Five one's a that's a thumping, isn't it? That's I've that's I've gone home at half time type result. Um, <laughs> sorry okay thank you very much for asking me fair questions I really hope that's going to continue it's not about the winning it's about the taking part I'm the most competitive person you know you must you must you must realize that um, anyway let, let's get on um all right we can't play any golf at the moment because it keeps raining and let's for god's sake hope that um it stops soon um I haven't seen Strensel Golf Club for nearly two months um, we're shut again because the heavens completely opened on Saturday and just drenched the whole the whole of the city. Um, but let's hope we get back to some golf soon. And, and while that is going on, while we can't play on the course, um, preparations for the new season are very much going ahead, aren't they? We're being asked now to enter our summer match play tournaments. I'm sure, Tom, you are entering everything you possibly can, right? Uh, I'm trying, apart from I don't have enough balance in my app thing, so I need to sort that out. But yeah, 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 it's that season. I'm right there with you. So this question um, is made with match play in mind, and obviously we're all busy people, and there's constant complaints, isn't there, that advice from some about how long golf takes. So are there any things that you can do in match play to speed things along? We know we can concede a hole during the play. We know we can see the match during the match. What if you and your opponent agree to shorten a match by conceding holes before you tee off. Can I give you the first? Can you give me the second? Can we just concede the front nine between us and move on to the back nine? What do you think about these golf concession rules? Uh, no, you can't do that. I, I think I know this. I'm pretty sure you can't do that because you can't, if you've entered an 18-hole uh, knockout handicap or otherwise or whatever then that is the, that is the kind of format that's like the length of field so it's a bit like if you've entered a horse race and it's a 220 a, whatever a two furlong sprint you can't then say actually no we'll just start halfway you have to set out to play the course and distance uh, i think in match play if you haven't got round for you, that someone's had to leave earlier or if it's got dark i think you can agree to come back and play it another day uh, and you can obviously concede a match but i don't think that two players can materially change the length of the game so i'm saying no you can't do that you can't do it you're sort of there with the answer it's it's a bit i mean the, the your, your ultimate answer is correct you can't um there are a bit more subtleties around the you what thought you thought i would get that wrong didn't you because you thought i'm i'm my brain would just think, yeah, you can do what you want. What's it matter? I, I didn't think you would get it wrong. Um, I was interested whether you would know the full, the full reasoning behind it. Um, you can concede the next stroke of your opponent. You can see, concede a hole. You can even concede a match. Uh, it's in Rule Three Point Two B One. You can concede a stroke at any time before it's made. You can concede a hole at any time before it's completed. You can concede a match at any point before the results decided. So you can shorten holes, Tom, when you're out there. Yeah. When you're out there and you're playing, you could say to me on the tenth, "I've had enough now. It's I'm, f I'm five down. We're stopping." You are allowed to do that. What you're not allowed to do 
is to club together and concede holes to make sure you get off the course a bit quicker. And it's in yeah. clarifications for 3.2b1. What it says is a player and opponent are not allowed to agree to concede holes to each other to shorten the match. It gives a very clear example of what that looks like in practice. It says, before starting a match, for example, a player and their opponent agree to alternate the concession of holes 6, 7, 8, 9 to each other. They can't do it. The penalty depends on how ignorant you are of the rules. If the pair of you know that this is not allowed, if you know beforehand, and I'm now telling you listeners that it's not allowed, and you start the match before cancelling that agreement, then you both get disqualified under Rule 1.3b1. So the, pen the penalties for doing it can be really, really harsh. If you didn't know you were breaking the rules and that the agreement was not allowed, then the result of the match would stand. So while I can say to you on the 10th, we're going in, Tom, you've beaten me, what we can't do while we're out on the course is say, you have hole 10, I'll have hole 11, you have hole 12, I have hole 13, and we'll start on 14 again. Does that yeah, make sense? That's, yeah, that's what I thought. I, I, I probably expressed myself badly, Steve. I'm still having victory there. You basically can't decide that you're going to do nine holes instead of 18 because you've entered an 18-hole comp. I like it. I think it's a good rule. Stick with it. Right. You have reached the end of Series 1. How do you feel? I feel like, you know, I, f I feel like... Uh, a government minister preparing for election. I'm sort of standing in front of the listener saying, we delivered what we set out to at the start of our administration, <laughs> albeit we're still promising you another special guest at some point, but, but largely we've made our manifesto commitments and we can move on, um, have a little bit of time off, go and, go and have a recess and then come back in a couple of weeks. Don't politicians and normally make those speeches when they're stepping down because they're sort of trying to list their achievements? Well, who knows who will be back in season two, right? Well, this is true, yeah. So we're going to have two weeks off and we're going to use that time wisely to plan episodes, improve our production value, talk about how we promote it so we can get some more subscribers and some more listeners. Uh, but we are going to continue very much in the same vein where we're going to have a club golf focus, but we are going to veer into the world of tour golf and we are going to continue having some very special guests. Avid listeners will know that last week I promised a very special guest for this week. I doubly promise that we'll get someone good for season two. Thanks for listening.